Welcome back to the Teaching in Tech podcast for season two with Alan and Chad, where we continue to explore everything related to teaching, learning, and technology integration. Working with teachers, we see amazing things happening in classrooms every day. In each episode, we'll detail teaching strategies and technology integration ideas that are working. Also, special guests will join us to share strategies that have been successful with students. Well, welcome back for another episode of Teaching in Tech with Alan and Chad. And today we are excited to be joined by a veteran teacher at Canton McKinley High School, uh, someone who's been in the district for a long time and as, uh, as designated in his email signature, the elder statesman of the English department, David <laughs> Anderson, welcome to Teaching in Tech. Thank you very much. Glad to have you. So as we get started today, you've spent the majority of your career uh, here in Canton City Schools. And it's uh, just interesting for us to find out a little bit more. What led you into the profession? How did you get started in education? I've always been sort of a compulsive teacher. Whenever I learned something, like rock climbing, uh, bicycling, whatever, I wanted to share it with other people, get them involved. And uh, also, it turned out, even though I I learned fairly easy outside of a classroom, I had a lot of difficulty. Once I got past fifth, sixth grade, I had a lot of trouble learning in a classroom because teachers were not teaching me how to learn. They were sharing with me what they knew. And I wanted to take what I've learned over time about how to learn to kids so they wouldn't have to go through that, which um, is how I ended up in Canton City. Well, you know, it's interesting because a lot of times when we when we talk to people about, you know, what was your path and how did you get into the profession? A lot of times, you know, for those of us in teaching, we look back to teachers maybe that influenced, influenced us in one way or another way. And uh, you know, it's interesting to see in this case, it was more of a situation of where school didn't necessarily fit your learning style and you were kind of looking ahead and maybe a more forward way of looking at it where you wanted to be able to adjust that for others who had maybe that same issue. Well, what would really happen is school was miserable for me. Uh, like I said, once I got to about seventh, eighth grade, uh, algebra was, was the first uh, class that wasn't just intuitive for me. Hmm. And uh, because the teachers would say, well, this is what we, we, we want you to learn. They demonstrate the, the, the results, but they weren't showing me how to get there. I learned more about algebra going to Florida with my parents once when, because they took me out of school. My dad every day taught me directly for an hour and I went back and, 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 and I was fine with that. But, um, I said, mostly it, it, it it's, it's, a classroom is a great, great place to share information. Ralph Waldo Emerson points out it's not a great place to learn. We learn from the experience. We learn from using the knowledge outside. We learn from, from being active in our learning. We talk about engagement in the classroom. And I wanted to try to bring that. Uh, I, was, I was lucky enough to have my father. And um, I know not everybody has that same, uh, that same recourse. So I, I yeah, just want to yeah. It's interesting the way that you, you point that out, you know, the difference between sharing information and learning, those are two very different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other thing that you had mentioned to us uh, previously, too, that even as an English teacher, one of your stronger influences came from an engineering professor mm-hmm. that you had. Uh, maybe expand on that a little bit. Sure. Uh, Dr. Baker, I've been for years trying to locate him to say thank you, and I've, I've never, never been able to. Uh, I had him for statics, which is the study of rigid bodies in engineering, like how to make bridges not fall down. Hmm. And the thing he did that initially really, really impressed me, uh, we'd get three problems to do every night. The class met, you know, three days a week, college class. 
three problems to do before the next session. And he always would tell us, I go home and I do the problems I'm assigning to you. If I cannot do, if I can do them in 20 minutes, you should be able to do them an hour. If I cannot do them in 20 minutes, I am going to change the assignment. I'm going to take something out and put in something because you have to have, you have to be able to learn, not just be tasked to learn. And that to me was, was just brilliant. Yeah. And that's also amazing too, from the, the standpoint of somebody at, you know, that level of higher education to be looking at the learner's experience and how the things that were being assigned, how they impacted the learner. And if he wasn't able to do them in 20 minutes, it would be probably something that would take you much, much longer than what he was intending for it to do. Yeah. And I think it lends, I mean, I know we'll talk more about your strategy and everything, but we've had enough conversations in the past to say too often our kids um, are compliance focused, right? So I think that just that that frame may have set you up for, you know, your lifelong thought of we are too often telling kids complete these tasks, not do you really understand how or what you're doing and why it matters. Exactly. No, you know, it's funny. I, I, just to throw this in here, uh, since we talked last, of course, other things keep popping into my mind. Uh, one of the, the researchers I, I really like, it's either Maria uh, Wurzberger or Deb uh, Fredrickson. Uh, identifies three types of knowledge. There is awareness knowledge. I, I know there's this thing called algebra. There's how-to knowledge. I know how to solve problems. And then there's principles knowledge where you understand why the methods work to solve the problems. And that's what you can take and transfer somebody else. At the level of understanding, the classroom becomes interesting because you're coming in and you have ideas of where you want to go with it. And if I can at that point, if, if I can start talking to you about something, you're, you're recognizing things in what I present that apply to things that you're interested. Uh, we move forward. Uh, I, I had an incident like that just this morning, actually, somebody who has not said a word in class. And when I mentioned that I once had a 1970 uh, Dodge Super B with a 383 Magnum four barrel, I made a friend. <laughs> and he was over hey. talking to me. Yeah. I mean, it was just at that point and suddenly... You know, we're talking about what well, he says. Well, you know, but I just can't write. I said, you're talking to me beautifully. You can write. You just can't put it on paper yet. We'll get you there. Right. Yeah. And that make, making connections is really an amazing thing when it comes to learning. Once uh, once the learner can connect with the content, even if it's through an example, even through, a, you know, something like you mentioned there, yeah. uh, that really does make all the difference. So uh, tell us a little bit as far as, uh, you know, we know that you're deep into your career. You still love what you do as you come in every day. But. Uh, tell us a little bit just about your journey in education, some of the different uh, subjects that you've taught, um, some of the different uh, maybe buildings that you've taught in, and, and a little bit about how it's gone along the way. Yeah, well, what, what's what's really helped indirectly, uh, like I said, I did not know how to learn in school, so school wasn't fun. When I learned how to learn, school started to be fun, and then suddenly I wanted to learn everything. So uh, I know you guys both laughed when I mentioned that I graduated with 234 semester hours. <laughs> Uh, scattered across math, philosophy, uh, history, poli sci. Uh, two degrees. Yeah, it would be Minimum. if I'd ever, yeah. Uh, the one I'm closest to, if I wanted a second one, by the way, is math. I'm only like two courses away from that, but it's 69. I'm not going there. Uh, <laughs> I think you're outside of that six-year window for courses still counting towards yeah. degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that too. Uh, but, it, it, you know, it was it, it was. Once I learned that it was fun, my my task has been 
to try to to break down that barrier for 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 kids to get them like you talked about to learn because you're interested not to comply with an assignment. So I started off. Uh, I I was in a situation. I was working in industrial construction, junior field engineer. And the job shit closed down. I did not get picked to go along with the company. My dad offered to let me finish. Uh, I needed one more year to finish my English degree and, and get my, my teaching license. And I did that, but I was late getting in the year that I started. And they told me the only place I could do my first observations was Kansas City. And I was nervous about that because I grew up in the suburbs. But I, I came in, I did my first observations with Yami Spence at Sowers. And then I started doing the rest of my observations. I did all, I think, entirely in McKinley. I worked with uh, uh, Sean Stranger's mother, who was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, learned a lot from her. And I fell in love with the kids in the district. It was like I, he said, I have been there by this district's count. This is my 36th year. But if you count night school and summer school, it's my 38th. And I have never had it cross my mind to go anywhere else because I see what I dreamed of happening, happening, not as much as I'd like it to, but it is happening here and it's a good feeling. Well, that that's really, I mean, it's impressive just to think about the longevity and, and the number of changes okay. that have taken place over that time period. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm um, quite a few years behind you, but I look at the things I've seen in, in my 24 years and it's like all the changes and things that come about um, it's, it's really impressive to see somebody in that role in the same district and, uh, um, pretty good stuff. You know, I gotta say, uh, it's pretty inspirational there, Mr. Anderson to, uh, know that it's 36 slash 38 years. Um, you, you still commit, I mean, the, the drive and passion that you have, especially after that long in the same place. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, we, we talk about, burnout and and i'm not saying that you never hit a place where you kind of you know dip down and come back but you always come back and you come back even harder right and and i'm just amazed anytime we talk or work i mean it's it is it's amazing to see that you know you say okay we messed up this didn't work great how do i now make it better or change or or maybe i gotta flip directions and a lot of people at that point in their career just say, oh, I have a system. I'll just float it out to the end. That's, that's funny. When I worked for uh, Brenda Neal, when we, we started the Freshman Academy, and I think I may be the last uh, of the design teachers for the Freshman Academy still teaching. But Brenda always talked about, you know, you can talk about teaching 20 years or you can talk about teaching one year 20 times. And the uh, very things Chad talked about, the changes in that, that's that's part of it. My 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 thing has has never been focused on the English. I mean, I love writing, I love reading, I love all that stuff. But my focus has always been how can I get a kid who's not learning to learn? And I don't mean by like push him to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's 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 the missing piece to the understanding? So ev- everything for me, I go home. I'm not you know kids do this assignment and get rated. It's okay. This like and, and exactly the way you word Alan. This did not work. What can I do to, to modify it? Which leads, I know eventually we're going to end up there, but I'm going to mention now, which leads to the whole micro teaching idea of saying, let's, let's take something and, and, and have people sit down and look at it and make an effort to find out why it didn't work, make an effort to, to, to find things that we could suggest that would make it more accessible to our students. I think it's an interesting frame that you've kind of posed, uh, 
you know, you said you love the English, you love the content, but that's not your focus of what you're doing. Your focus is on getting kids to learn how to learn. And then it, you're presenting the content for them to learn. Right. I think too often um, we think about it as I have content that I need to deliver yeah. and hopefully they pick up the package and run with it. But that's not always the case. Absolutely. The UPS form of education. <laughs> yeah. Delivery. <laughs> Well, as we this episode, our focus is assessment. And uh, we're going to talk to you as we get into this about some of the things you do to assess student learning that are what I would consider a little bit unique, uh, but at the same time, very effective. And as you talked about with your own with your own, uh, you know, teaching methods and with your craft, that you're constantly assessing and evaluating how did it work? How can I improve it? And how can I make it better? And so the first strategy we're going to talk about a little bit is the concept of micro teaching, something here at, at McKinley that uh, when I came to the building uh, was really an eye opener for me, something I had never experienced in any of the buildings that I had worked in. And it's really a form of assessment for your actual delivery and teaching uh, strategies. So um, tell us a little bit about micro teaching and how, how you uh, got into that. Well, the, what attracted me to it was uh, John Hattie's book, the uh, famous meta study, Making Student Thinking Visible. And uh, he basically, I, I, I don't know how many things are on the list, an enormous list. And they Continues have these to grow. Pardon again? Continues to grow. It does, yeah, I'm, I would think. Uh, but, but if you look at it, the thing that, 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 that really got me when I was working on my master's degree, way back before my EDS, uh, it, I read something by, uh, I think it's Elizabeth Showers and Bruce Joyce that said that standard professional development as the schools uh, generally do it uh, is effective about 5% of the time and almost not at all after six months. And then I'm reading Hattie and he's got these, uh, all these teaching methods from the most effective, the least effective in the top 10, if not the top five, he's got this thing, micro-teaching. Micro-teaching is not a classroom strategy. It is a professional development strategy. So I'm looking saying we keep doing stuff that is proven to be practically worthless. <laughs> and here's something that that is statistically demonstrably effective. Why aren't we doing it? Uh, so I got a, a few colleagues uh, together and said, let's, let's, let's start doing some, uh, some micro-teaches. The idea being I am going to take either a lesson that I'm getting to deliver or getting ready to deliver and I want to see in advance where the pitfalls are or I taught a lesson and maybe it even worked well in a couple of classes, but I fell off the cliff on one. And in a micro teach, you have six to eight colleagues sitting in a room. You treat them as students. You're not presenting and explaining. You teach the lesson to them and then you videotape it. And at the end, as you play back the video. Uh, people will stop and say, here, you could have done this here. You could have done that. And we're focusing on doing here. It's not bringing another strategy to try to, you know, learn with a new strategy in one hand and, and my, my pencil in the other, but uh, the delivery itself, you've got something that is fundamentally good, but it's failing. You're, you want to know where, where, where did I have a chance to engage people and didn't. And so it's not like a protocol session where you go in and evaluate a new learning method, you are literally saying, how, how well do you convey to other people what it is you want them to do? And I found over my years teaching nine times out of 10, when students don't do something, they either don't understand it, or they have been inured from years of people not, uh, you know, leaving them not understanding, and they just don't try and we have to win them back. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I always enjoyed the perspective from this activity that it's not just a single content, right? It, it's anybody from any type of position that could literally come in and, and participate in uh, like a chunk of the lesson, right? A yep. scaled down version. Go ahead. Yep. Well, and, and that's actually the, the person like from for, from uh, you as a, as a math teacher. Mm hmm. If you have a room full of other math teachers there, it's real easy to slip into jargon and not realize it because you're talking the same language. Exactly. If you come in to watch me and I'm doing English and you hear something, you just get, wait a second. I'd, in fact, we even did a protocol. I think you might have come to one of those two years before, right before we did the micro teach. All it was was come in. I'm going to give you the I'm going to go through the instructions that I'm going to give my kids. You're not going to offer corrections. Just highlight everywhere there's something you didn't understand. And I mean, yeah. you're you're a math teacher, but you are a teacher. If you don't understand it, why are you surprised that the kids don't understand it? So that 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 kind of fuzzy perspective of well, I understand teaching and I understand the basic concept. But this is kind of outside my my uh, my area of expertise is actually, I would say it's the most important part. You know, when I uh, first came into the building and, and got a little bit of experience to see what you guys were doing with that, um, that was really something new for me. And I, I it just was I was really taken aback by it because my experience had mostly been one of two things at the end of a school day. Uh, you had almost like in the uh, in the Roadrunner cartoon where like with smoke on their feet, like out the door, heading to the parking lot. <laughs> Uh, which in some cases, you know, teachers need a little bit of a breather at the end of the day. So that's understandable. And then also, you you know, you have those people who kind of are the, uh, you know, the grinding, like working, you know, the midnight oil type people, but they're always working on their own and by themselves. So the idea of colleagues coming together on their own time, not, you know, dictated to by administration or any building initiative, just to kind of work on and refine their craft. Uh, that was something that really stood out to me as like, you know, this is this is passion for teaching and, and really is an, an impressive thing to see. Well, you know, the, the scary thing, um, Deloitte Management Consultancy did two studies in the, in the last decade. I forget which. They were two years back to back. And the really frightening thing they found, less than 15% of the American workforce has any passion for the job they do. Almost 40% of the American workforce has no passion. For, for they, they are the ones who say the smoke on their feet is, a, you know, shifts over, get in the car, go home, you know, have right. some fun. Um, like I said, I'm a compulsive teacher. I'm also a compulsive teaching talker. I have never been invited a second time to a party. <laughs> I, I am not making that up. It is like, no, no, he'll corner you and start talking about Bill and William. And, you know, it's, and so, you know, I accept that. That's, that's, that's my burden. But, um, it's like, Alan said, you know, about there's no miracle about the 38 years. I have fun. I come in here and I'll admit COVID wasn't a lot of fun in my first year. Definitely was not fun. But once I kind of got the hang of it, this to me, I'm looking at people and I've shared with everybody. It's, it's, it's no news at 55. I was diagnosed as, as having Asperger's, which is an autistic spectrum disorder. Uh, I went through school autistic and nobody knew it. I had teachers tell my parents, your son is lazy. Your son is disorganized. I never had one teacher say, here's some ideas to help him get organized. Hmm. And I don't know, I got off on a tangent there and at my age, I shouldn't do that. But the, 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 the thing is I, I stay and I do this because 
I get to talk to people about teaching and they, I don't have to worry about not getting by, invited back next time. <laughs> well, you know, one thing that comes along with that too, uh, you know, not that we've uh, completely, our profession has completely solved all the issues that we face and not that everything that goes on in classrooms is, is, is always in, in all cases better than the past. But I think one thing that we have gotten a little bit better at is figuring out the idea that we need to give some some concrete steps for students of how they can be successful, yep. you know, as opposed to the idea of come in, digest what we tell you, and then depending on how well you can kind of you know recite that back to us, that'll determine you know where you rank in terms of a, you know a numerical score. And so I, I do think that's one thing that we've started to realize is that individuals, you know, even not so much students, but even teachers. I mean, teachers, the differences between personality, teaching style, just as you mentioned, you know, some of the things that you do may not necessarily work for Alan and the way Alan's class is structured may not necessarily work for me, but it's, it's kind of that constant social experiment of trying to find a way among, you know, your teaching style and the learning styles of the students to get the best possible experience for everybody who's in the room. So. I think the hard part with that though, is systematically, that's maybe not the case yet, right? So you, I, I think a little bit about what you're doing and what we're trying to work towards, obviously is going in the right direction, but you know, it, that I would not say system-wide, especially higher ed, right? They don't, they, it's not necessarily formatted that same way. It's, it's a very much a business model. Oh yeah. Um, I'm married to a college professor, so uh, with whom I, by the way, disagree on practically everything to do with education, and she teaches <laughs> education. Uh, but that, that 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 makes for interesting conversations. Uh, yeah. The one thing you said that, that you know, w w one of the things that gets in the way, and uh, I'm you know I'm not I'm not throwing you under the bus here, Alan, because you know I I don't feel this way about you at all. <laughs> uh, but until we start to also evaluate based on things like what are you doing to encourage student growth mm -hmm. rather than always looking at the outcomes. And it's, it's the thing that frightens me when we always talk about data-driven, data-driven, data-driven is if you don't stop to investigate the data, uh, a kid who's a really good cheater statistically is going to look just as good a kid uh, who, who worked real hard and learned. And I actually know that from experience from a school I go to because I was to surveying. Uh, with the person who was the valedictorian the year my wife graduated. It was years before I finished my 234 hours. But I was on her survey team. She kept two survey books. That's illegal. In surveying, if you make a change, you have to. You, it has to be scratched out in hard lead so they can see the scratch out and also see the original number and then the correction down below. And then you have to be able to justify that if you're ever, if you're ever calling in for uh, you know, so a clarification. She kept two two books, so hers were always the ones she turned in were always pristine. And she was honored as the valedictorian. Everybody's and I'm sitting there in the audience watching, you know, waiting for my wife to graduate, thinking, "You got to be kidding me." Uh, if we get the evaluations to include things like he is doing things that are really helping this kid over in the corner who does not want to be here get engaged, he's mm -hmm. really doing things to bring him up. We have to set that that marker out there for the teachers because a lot of teachers are like the kids. They're um, performance goal oriented. Mm -hmm. I want to pass my evaluation. I want to you know keep my job. I want to move on to another position. Mm -hmm. At some point, if you're if you're going to throw somebody under the bus because he didn't get the results because he's trying to bring people in to learn, and these other people are advancing, uh, dear money always pushes cheap money out of the market. 
Well, you know, one thing that gives us a little bit of hope, you think about how Ohio's teacher evaluation system has changed, you know, in the last iteration where we went from, uh, you know, a 50-50 model where 50% was observed evaluation, 50%, you know, was student student achievement. And now we're moving into a model where we're looking at uh, how does a teacher take information and data about their students and then what instructional decisions are they making? And so, you know, when you look at that type of shift, you know, maybe there is some hope that we're moving toward that model where there'll be a little bit more look at how does the teacher connect with the students and what kind of things do they do to, to facilitate learning as opposed to just uh, what's that, uh, you know, achievement score on the assessments that are given. Well, I'd say that's more than hope. I, you know, I'd completely forgotten about that, but that actually answers the, you know, as a, as a response to my concern, because that yeah. is sitting there saying, okay, what, given what I just saw, given what you saw, what's your next step? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the hope is, right, I because ever since I started, it's always been a dog and pony show for an observation. It's always scheduled. I know when you're coming in, I'm going to do all this. And my favorite was hearing stories about when teachers would do this and evaluator come in and the kid go, why are you acting weird? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so it really it, I always looked at it as if you truly care about what you're doing and you truly care about the kids, don't put on a show. Yeah. Right. Just come in, do what I'm doing, what I would normally do. And if I've got feedback that I don't like, well then change something. Right. One of my favorite teaching experiences. And and again, this is where one thing triggers another years back at Timken, we were due for a North central um, evaluation and I knew I was going to be evaluated and I had all put together this great lesson to, you know, impress the evaluator get up in front of my kid's classroom, T306, Timken, right on the corner of uh, McKinley and Tusk, lots of noise in the background, opened my briefcase, had left everything at home. <laughs> I had to make up the entire thing from scratch and look like I, you know, had planned it. Without and, missing and a beat. Without missing a beat. And and it, it went really well. And I, I that's, it's, you know, I, I've taught 30, uh, 38 years, like I said, the one thing I have never applied for is continuing contract. And I'm not I'm saying that's just me. Yeah. And it's sort of like the rock climbing thing. It was like, I got to prove to myself and maybe this is the autism. I got to prove to myself I'm every I, I am good enough that they're going to keep me. And I know that's naive in a lot of people's eyes, but that that's also been kind of a motivator for me. I just. I just wanted to do it that way. And again, no shade on anybody who, who doesn't. I understand continuing. It's a great thing. I just wanted to always, I can, maybe it was that they opened in the briefcase and seen an empty and said, am I good enough to teach if I don't have my, 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 my prepackaged lesson with me? Yeah, well, but- you know, the other thing too, is that when you start looking at from a, a standpoint of understanding what you're motivated by, I mean, I think a lot of our students would benefit from that and become much better learners if they could understand their actual motivations and what, you know, what gets them going. And you've been able to identify for you, that's a source of motivation and you use it to keep things, uh, you know, keep, stay sharp and and keep things moving forward. I try. (laughs) Well, and, you know, as we continue to talk about students, students being the focus, your goal has always been, um, how do I get them to learn or how do i how do i figure out the best way to support them in figuring out how to learn the second Um, one yeah trying to frame it in the right way right um the other piece that we talked about was you know engagement yeah uh and engagement in regards to assessment and so you've kind of battled back and forth over the years on the appropriate way or the best way to do this um you want to touch base on that for us 
Well, I, I think if I'm right, what you're alluding to the the it was I had, I had a great physics professor. I used him for a lot of exams. We talked about having an aha moment, and my aha moment was when I was sitting there grading uh, papers for something I had just taught, and I am grading them for comprehension on a A to F scale. And at one point, I stopped and said, "Wait a second! I just presented this to somebody. I don't again. This ties into micro teaching." was this kid not learning or did I miss something he needed to know? And so I'm looking, you know, a kid learning something new who doesn't quite get it, that's pretty average. And our grade for average is a C, not a D, not an F. C says average. If a kid gets it the first time out, that's really good. And this ties back into that physics professor. He's great. I used an accent, worked for NASA in the summers. But I remember we he would put a string of equations on the board. And like most teachers, he'd get bored partway through. So he'd, so we start with this, and then we'll go down to the next step. And that's this. And, that. and this, from here, it becomes obvious, at which point I threw my pen down on the floor because it was not obvious. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he was a great guy, one of my favorite professors. I learned a lot from him. Uh, but that was when I realized, no, you can't take, as we talked about, if you start talking math jargon to the kids and they don't speak math jargon uh you know it's like the kids love to try to get me with 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 street jargon which i don't know very well and i was you know i gotta be honest about it I say what do you what do you what do you think that means mr I, I don't know you got to explain that one to me because i don't know well let's let's talk a little bit about as far in this in this vein of uh, engaging students. I know one of the things you do part of the way they're evaluated in the course is based on a, a learning engagement grade like how how well they right. engage. And you know as we talked earlier you described yourself as a, as a teacher who's been waging war on the points grading system for 37 oh, yeah. years. So tell us a little bit about how you actually take their engagement in their learning and how you translate that into how you evaluate their their overall work. Well, you're referring to, I, I think, uh, behavioral economics, which is, is really interesting stuff. Uh, Dan Ariely, for anybody who's interested in, in the, uh, you know, one of the big names in it. Uh, they did a lot of experiments. Um, they talk about rational irrationality, that there are things people do that make no sense to us as teachers, looking at them as students, make perfect sense to them. Uh, and most of us do not like to be told 24 hours a day what to do next. We want to have some sense of, uh, of autonomy. So I took one of Ariely's experiments where uh, they, they gave diminishing rewards to people for doing work to find out at which point would they stop working and applied it to reading. Because for years, um, like I said, if a kid, if, if I give a writing assignment to you guys, I know whether or not you wrote it because I can see the words. I have no clue whether or not you're actually reading. I have to, there's honor system in there at some point. So I took his idea and said, okay, it's real simple. Uh, I'm going to break down the reading assignments into passages early in the year. There'll be small passages as the year progresses, they'll get bigger and you choose where you're going to stop. But for reading the first passage, every time that'll get you up to a D minus. And then however much of the text is left. And it was the question Alan asked me when we talked based on the amount there, I divided up into equal chunks and each time you come back, you know, you get from zero to 68 point, or 62.5 is a big jump. But the next one's going to be less than 10 percent. And then the next one's going to be less than 8 percent. And the next one. So you're really what you're doing is you're weaning them away from extrinsic reward. I'm doing it for the grade. There's a point at which they'll say, and you say well, that's doing it for the grade. No, it's a subtle difference. Well, hell, I'm this close to an A. Why not? That is mm -hmm. not the same thing as doing it for the grade. 
Right. That is recognizing I'm closer to this goal than I thought. I can do it. The amazing thing is watching the number of kids who, as they get closer and closer, and I did share with you one that absolutely floors me. A lot of the kids will get one away from perfect and stop there just because they want to say, you didn't make me do it. I chose to stop here. I said, you know what? That's fine. That's fine. In the end, though, when you've got when you've uh, kind of led them along and helped them to get that close as opposed to not even engaging with the material at all, I would say that's definitely a win. Oh, yeah. Especially, you know, when we talked about you, when you started implementing this, um, I think it's been a couple of years now, as it, and you've, you've modified your model a little oh, bit. Yeah. But, but even when you put it in play the first time, you had told me that the level of engagement had improved by more than half the students that yeah. were disengaged. And then as you continued, and that became almost like a, a routine in class, more of those kids that were left, left behind because they're like, oh, man. I can at least get a D if I just read this part. Well, read and engage, right? I know you have well, a writing. They have, like I said, yeah, they have to prove that they didn't just. Yeah. It's not like I'm claiming I did this. It's okay. What did you What did you read? Tell me three things. Yeah. yeah. And when we talk about assessment, right, I know that at one point you were even doing checks on it and allowing them to move on. And oh, that yeah. might have been a different point in the year, but. You know, so you're that's even instant feedback. And they talk about that being one of the highest and most effective ways uh, to not only engage kids, but to assess. So when you talk about instant feedback, you're you're quickly gaining what their understanding is. It's in a one on one setting. I mean, talk about high yield. I mean, that that's amazing. Well, the, the thing that's fun, too, and I'm seeing it this year. Maybe it's not that it's more than most. This is this is the first year since COVID that's felt normal. Yeah, uh, I start yeah. to sense that too. I can I can feel we're starting to get back into a routine where it feels like a regular school year. Yep. And what I'm seeing, uh, particularly because I was actually doing, I also don't let assignments disappear. They do this uh, rationally rational reading, and then we move on to um, multiple submission essays. And I they are, I had it today. Kids, are we allowed to look back at the at the work we did before? And it's you are not only allowed, you are encouraged. That is the whole point of why we did it in this sequence, so that you stop doing the same thing over and over again, which is going to bore you to death. Uh, this is for those of your listeners who remember the red couch. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> but but I, I and I'm watching today, and what I'm seeing as they're going back is pairs of people, not through the whole class. But a pair here, a pair there, where one person's leaning over and pointing to the screen and talking, and I know what's going on. And it is, um, you know, so you re- and it's like basically looking out and saying, really, I only got to do that to move. And, and it's not that they get the grade for doing it. That is they establish the ceiling. So if I read 7 of 11 passages and that gets me to one up, up to an A minus, that says if based on this much of, of the assignment, uh, I, I, I get an A, that A will be a 92.5, not 100%. Because I did, I chose not to read the entire thing. But it's clearly outlined for him. Absolutely. It's up on the screen. Yeah. And you talk about, you know, being transparent and establishing that expectation for students. And I think sometimes, and this is just across the board when we teach, um, we talk about goals and objectives. But a lot of time, I think that gets lost in translation to kids. And so that, puts the end goal in their face and then they set it. Right. So you say, I'd love you. I love it. You get a hundred percent. Perfect. This is what I'm hoping you read and you gain. But if you don't, right, I'm still going to celebrate the fact that you had reached here. We talked about this the other day. Some kids, 
hey, I'm happy with a C. Yeah. Right. My parents, if I get Caesar up, they're good. I'm good. Yeah, leave me alone. Yeah. yeah. Right. So why not allow them to explicitly see this is how you get that? Well, so if you've ever, uh, I, I remember the, I, I used to do a lot of bicycling and I, one year I rode the little Ohio spring tour, 34 mile route, and it was sleeting the whole time. I mean, my beard was, was weighing me down with all the ice in it. Uh, I had my winter riding tights on and they were sagging back, you know, it was cause they, they were going to pull down. <laughs> and, uh, I, I got to this God awful hill and I stopped. And this kind of explains why we, even though you decrease the reward, it still motivates kids. I got to the bottom of this God awful hill, uh, about maybe a mile from Tuslaw high school where it ended. I didn't realize I was only a mile from the end that, that you got to understand or this doesn't work. And I had pedaled the whole way and I got off the bike and said, I'm walking it up the hill. I'm beat. I took three steps and said, get back on the bike. Just throw your weight from side to side. Let your weight push the pedals. Get up the damn hill. And I got up the hill and realized I could see Tussle off in the distance. And I mean, I was literally, I had never ridden no hands before. I was doing Rocky that whole way. I was, <laughs> you know, it was the ice monster with my, and I have never had a more glorious, all the climbing, everything, nothing touches in terms of physical things. That, that realizing I didn't give up at that last minute and it turned out I was closer to the end than I thought. I want other kids, other kids, I want other people to, to, to have that same experience. Yeah. It's definitely a transfer for the, you know, the way that you encourage them to read. One other thing that I think is really interesting when you're looking at assessing what they comprehend from the reading that you assign to them, yes. using those reading verification activities that they do for each of the passages that they read. First of all, the way that you break up those passages into small chunks, I think really helps to keep from overwhelming them when they're looking yes. at X amount of chapter, you know, that they have to read how many pages is it? And it's just so overwhelming that they never get started when they're doing it in small chunks. It definitely makes it a lot less daunting. Mm -hmm. But then also the way that you're looking at asking them to give some details that you recall. So instead of sending them on that, that, you know, hunt for different facts from the passage, they're able to actually look for connections and things that they recall what stood out to them passage by passage. And I'm sure that gives you some good conversation in class too, when you start oh, yeah. kind of weaving that all together, what students put down. Yeah, I, I definitely don't teach where's Waldo. Um, I, I recognized in, in some of the assignments I had done over the years that exactly Alan mentioned it. I don't remember the phrase he used, but reading through looking for the things that are going to be the answers and having no clue to the fabric of the text. And uh, if, if two years ago, I started with the idea. So I want you to tell me what you noticed. And they would still come back to me and says, is this good? I said, did you notice it? I said, yeah. I said, that means something in your brain got triggered when you saw it, which means this connects to something you already know. You don't have to learn two new things. You take this thing and connect it. And we have a pathway into the story. We have a pathway into the problem. And it's going to be different pathways for different kids, but at least you are on a pathway. And it's, it's like I said, if you call me and ask, you know, say, hey, uh, I'm having trouble finding your house. How do I get there? The next question I'm going to ask is, well, where are you? But how often do we do that? We, we put everybody at the same spot. Yeah. Even even you know, like a diagnostic test. Well, the I'm looking at data points. I don't teach data points. I teach small. Well, some of them are bigger than me. I teach human beings. They don't they, they aren't data points as a, a cheater or an, an, an expert cheater can look as good on paper as a scholar. Mm -hmm. And in our classrooms, the same thing. If we don't follow up the, the, the data points with, OK, let's see what the flesh and blood of these data points is really like. Uh, 
we are going to stumble for a lot longer than we would if we took the time to do that. You know, one of the things that we've talked about on on the show in previous episodes is the impact on AI and how that's going to affect teaching yeah. and learning going forward. And for a lot of teachers, there's a, a sheer panic that all their assignments are going to be obsolete because of AI. But when you look at the way that you build your class, you probably aren't the least bit concerned about AI because there's no way they can fake it. Well, on, on, on some preliminaries, I've actually I actually did uh, Alan's work because I contacted him on it. I had two papers that uh, I have never heard a kid talk about economic downturn in a lunch discussion. <laughs> so when I saw these, I ran them through um, uh, an uh, AI sorter or, or finder. Oh, a detector to, to check yeah. for for possibility of being written by AI. And one came back 85%. The other came back 99%. Uh, <laughs> But once I get, you know, so I said on that one, what I did, I said, look, uh, I ran this through. And the cool thing, one of the two kids did not change it. She took the hit on the grade. The other one, I, I suggested you might want to erase all that. And actually, the other one wrote a brilliant first uh, submission in his own words, his own thoughts. But what was really telling to me, was he said, I didn't understand we couldn't do that. And that is the part that really troubles me. Why do they not understand that? If they don't understand that AI is plagiarism, mm -hmm. so, well, but it's not somebody else's words, you're missing the point. You're plagiarizing the program he wrote to do that. He wrote the thing that created it. That is what you're plagiarizing. You're using what it produced, not what you produced. Um, we had a kid here, uh, if you remember the name, help me out, and the one who... Uh, Jason Reynolds was impressed by the, the, our poet, got something published. Uh, I was working in the writing lab, and he came in, and I was, I was working with him on, on a, a college entry uh, essay. And I told him about this. It was cool because he had created himself. He understood why plagiarism is bad. It's not mm -hmm. bad because you can get, you know, lose a lot of money if you get caught. It's bad because these are not my ideas I'm putting down. And I am taking one, I'm taking the credit away from somebody else. And the other, I'm puffing myself up undeservedly. We need to find a way to get his message to our kids rather than just, you know, that it's going to be a smackdown. Yeah, it's definitely a, definitely a learning opportunity for students to understand that. I, I guess for me, I, I kind of make a comparison to golf. You know, golf is an interesting sport because it's one of the few that you actually call penalties on yourself. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they've said for a long time, the best uh, thing to lower your score is a, a pencil with an eraser. So, but if, <laughs> you know, if, if that's what you're doing to, to lower your score, did you really shoot that score? Well, it's kind of the same idea when you talk about the, you know, plagiarism, when you turn something in someone else's work as your own. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's not only, you know, taken away from that person's ideas, but it's also, you know, you're really kind of taken away from your opportunity to think and, and share what you, you really think about something. So. Well, again, you know, go back 2,500 years. And uh, one of the things Confucius taught that I really loved is the ancients were ashamed to promise too much for fear they would not be able to live up to it. And that, you know, the idea of genuine shame as opposed to just being embarrassed or called out where you're, 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 you're sitting there and, and you're realizing I, I, I had a kid in speech was terrible. And the, the poor woman at the, at the tournament accidentally gave him sixth place in the tournament in the bus on the way home. I'm reading his scores. They were all awful. I called him over and said, you got to give it back. Why do I have to give it back? So, well, somebody didn't get to walk across that stage and be recognized by his friends because, and it's not your fault, but how would you feel if it had been you that didn't get to walk across the stage and you got back? 
he handed the trophy, but he went, I don't remember how we did it, but he got the, I think he took it the next tournament and handed it back to him and said, you made a mistake. Wow. And that, uh, and you said golf. One of the things I, I'm not a golf, uh, aficionado, but I loved when I read about, uh, Davis love the third, because he once disqualified himself from a tournament because he realized he had signed an incorrect scorecard. And I said, yep. I will, the day that I see a, a, a penalty called in football or, you know, a, a, and on a sliding into a base or something, the guy, no, 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 he got me. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I am going to go into, you'll hear the shout, you know, the hallelujah will resound at that point. Uh, that's great. You won't. I can hope. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> well, uh, as we wrap things up here, uh, it's really been interesting to hear about some of these strategies that you use and the way that you assess learning. Uh, if you had the opportunity to give advice to a new teacher, or maybe a, a teacher who's been in the classroom for a while, who's maybe feeling a little bit worn down and looking for some inspiration. Uh, what kind of advice would you give them? Um, well, again, the, the, the biggest thing would be you're telling your kids to study the material. Your job is to study the kids. Don't, don't, don't jump to conclusions. Uh, ask, why did you do that? Realize that there are times and places that, that, uh, are better than others. Um, Find the fun in it. I mean, really, it comes down to it. As I feel silly saying I've lasted this long because it sounds like, you know, I'm in the last stages of a marathon. <laughs> uh, I, I keep coming. I, I remember uh, Terry Garner was subbing as a principal about it was back before COVID. And he walked in the building and, and I'd work for him at Tim. He said, hey, how are you doing? I said, I'm still having fun. with you know, you are. And to me, the it's fact quite that a compliment. To, 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 to know that he recognized, he could tell that, that, that I, I, it, it, it's just, it is, I don't, to me, it's the greatest job in the world. I have a good time. Well, I think that's a, that's a great place for us to wrap up today. We, uh, it's been a blast talking with you. We definitely appreciate you coming on. Uh, thanks for being here today. That's well, my pleasure. Appreciate it. Okay. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this episode with Camp McKinley's own David Anderson. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and write us a review. You can find all episodes of Teaching in Tech with Alan and Chad on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.